tonight, and we are going into this. Uh, you should have the outline there. Hopefully, if you're here tonight, you grab one, and if uh, you're at home, maybe you've already uh, downloaded that. We're going through the 66 books of the Bible and calling this Route 66, just traveling through the books of the Bible, and tonight we come, uh, we started in the New Testament. We've already covered Matthew, Mark. Today we, we're, tonight we're in Luke, and we're very excited about this particular book, and I'm hoping that these overviews are really just kind of some information about these books of the Bible. I hope that they will encourage you while you're studying your Bible and reading through it, maybe keep these uh, notes that you're writing down uh, with you. By the time you're done, if the Lord lets us get all the way through this, you should have one piece of paper or maybe more than one for each book of the, of the Bible. And so here we are in the third of the gospel records tonight, Luke. And if you take a look at your outline there, it is entitled Luke, the book of Christ, the perfect man. Now, when we see the word perfect in our Bible, uh, of course, we understand when it's talking about us, none of us are perfect. All of us are flawed because of the human nature. Uh, we're all sinful people. Uh, even after we get saved, we still sin. That's why verses like 1 John 1, 9 are in our Bible. And, and when you think of Christians, you and I, the Bible uses the word perfect, and it's not talking about flawless. It's talking about maturing. And one thing that God wants us to do is to grow in the Lord, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and, and honestly, I don't think any of us will ever be mature or perfect until the day that we meet the Lord. And, and one thing is we should never, I, I know this is the way I am in my life, I'm never satisfied with where I am. Anybody else feel like that? That, that listen, I've got a long way to go when it comes to my Christian life. And tonight we're, we're going to talk about the Lord Jesus. So when you talk about the Lord, certainly Jesus was the perfect man. There was no sin in him. Jesus never lost his temper. Uh, he was perfect in every way. And it, as Christians, Jesus is the greatest example for us on how we should live our lives. That's why I love the gospel according to Luke is because it gives us a great uh, model to follow, and that is the Lord. And, and I hope you understand that tonight. Now, notice as we start into this, the name Luke actually means luminous, or in other words, like a light, and that's, that is what the name Luke means. Now, Luke, as you study the Word of God, Luke, by, by trade, by profession, he was a physician. And uh, you can tell, as you if, you if you were to take time, and I've done this a little bit myself, but if you were to take the time, the New Testament, again, was written in what we call Koine Greek. And, and you have this language that God chose to use. And when you study the Word of God, for instance, when you look at the Gospel of Luke, because Luke was a doctor, doctors are very educated people. So as Luke wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's not that it's harder to understand, but you have to understand who it was that God used to write this. Now, just the opposite, or maybe not opposite, but uh, maybe, maybe a little bit of a contrast would be next week, because next week we're going to look at John. John wrote the Gospel of John, also 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the New Testament. John, when you study John's Gospel, and I might mention this again next week, 
John, his gospel, 75% of the gospel of John was written in monosyllabic words. In other words, one-syllable words. So a lot of times, and, and maybe you want to remember this, or maybe you already know this, when, when I'm trying to help someone that's either close to being saved and, the, and they want to read their Bible, or somebody that just got saved, and I'm encouraging them, hey, listen, now that you're saved, <clears throat> you need to make sure you're reading your Bible every day. I will direct them to go and start in the Gospel of John. Because John's Gospel is very easy for people to get a hold of. How many of you have ever heard anything like that about John's Gospel? Any of you, a couple of you have heard that. But, but again, you come back to Luke. Luke was a physician. And, and so as you think about this, and the Bible says in Colossians 4.14 that Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So the Bible tells us right there in Colossians 4 that he was a physician. He was a man of education. He was a man of culture. And so we see this about him. Now, the one thing that we find is that Luke was not related to any of the 12 uh, apostles, and, and he was a Greek. He was not a Jew. And so we find here that as you study the Word of God, we look here, not only did God use Luke to write the Gospel according to Luke, but there's another book in the New Testament that Luke also wrote. Anybody know what that book is? The book of Acts. And, and so what we find is, is that in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, of course, after he got saved, Paul began to travel. We call those his missionary journeys. And as Paul began to travel, as you study the Word of God, here's what you find is Luke was a companion of Paul. Uh, he, he was with Paul many times. And as you find this out about him, uh, and again, it may have been as a result of him knowing Christ, it may have been a result of not only that, and him spending time with the Apostle Paul, who was very well-versed in the Word of God, that Luke was well-versed in the Scriptures. Now, when, when you talk about the Scriptures, it was probably, when it comes to Luke, because he was a Greek, he was probably well-versed in what we call the Septuagint. Remember, we talked about that about three or four weeks ago, that the Septuagint was the, the, uh, the Greek version of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so we find that Luke was well-versed in the Scriptures and that he was aware. Of, uh, remember the word that we use, Hellenistic, all right? These were Jews that had adopted the Greek way of life, the Greek culture. So when you think about that, the, the culture of the day, because he was a Greek, a lot of this played into his uh, Luke's literary patterns, and all of this had an impact on his literary style. I, I love when you study the Word of God. I've already mentioned it a little bit, but you know, you study some of these books of the Bible and some of the, the individuals. The Bible says holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You study the writings of Jeremiah, the writings of Isaiah, and you find the, the different literary styles. You know, the Bible really is a, a literary masterpiece. And you find the same thing when you study Luke's gospel and, and the book of Acts, is that his literary style was definitely a, a part of this Hellenistic period that he was a part of. Now, when you look at Luke's gospel, the third gospel uh, record, you find that he presents Jesus primarily as a teacher. We'll talk a little bit about this more tonight, but, but he was uh, one that, that he was introducing Jesus primarily as a teacher. 
And, of course, Jesus as a teacher, when you follow his life while he's teaching the people, he was, Jesus was interested in instilling the values and the virtues of compassion and forgiveness among his followers. And Luke brings a lot of that to light, how Jesus was, everywhere he went, he was trying to get people to understand that, that you need to forgive others and you need to try to help others. Well, how do you do that? By having compassion. Jesus was the greatest when it comes to having compassion for others. Now, when you study his life and some of this you don't find in the Word of God, that's why I mention this as maybe tradition. Uh, there are two ways that they believe that, that Luke uh, lost his life. Of course, uh, we know that he was living for the Lord, but we find that he either died as a martyr at the hands of Nero, uh, that's one probability, or they, there are some that claim that he was, he was hung on, a, on an olive tree in uh, the country of Greece by a group of pagans, and again, I can't be definitive about that. I just know that he died a martyr's death, like many that, that uh, God used. And so this is a little bit about the individual known as Luke that we're looking at his gospel record tonight. Now look at some of the contents tonight that we want you to get familiar with when it comes to Luke's gospel. Of course, if you look at the whole uh, gospel record, it's 24 chapters, and uh, they, are, they are just full of different things, uh, 1,151 verses. 25,944 words. And so, you know, it's very exciting to see all that God gives us. Now, one of the things I love about Luke's gospel, and it doesn't get into this right away, but here's what, what you found. Maybe you've already noticed this, but two of the four gospel records actually include the genealogy of Jesus. So if Luke is one, does anybody know what the other one is? Matthew. So we looked at Matthew a couple weeks ago, and I'm going to back up a little bit because I want to show you, uh, I waited to kind of do this with Matthew's genealogy tonight so that I could show you a, a parallel and also some of the differences that you would see from one to the other. So Luke, as well as Matthew, introduces the genealogy of Jesus, and the reason that he does is to show that Jesus, as the Messiah, was the son of David. And remember how a lot of times in the Bible, they really struggled with that. You know, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> that really kind of blew their minds. And so here the Bible, through Luke, God is allowing us and the readers of this gospel record to see that Jesus as the Messiah, as, as the, the long-awaited one, the anointed one of God, that he was the son of David. Now, how, do, how does Luke accomplish this or how does God allow this? Well, notice I want you to think about this. Matthew's table, in other words, when you look at the genealogy record in Matthew's gospel, uh, what you find is it's divided up into three groups of 14 generations. I don't know if you ever really paid attention to Matthew 1.17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are how many generations? 14. Now watch this. Here's the second group. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon, that's the Babylonian captivity, are how many generations? 14. And then the third grouping is from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are the third group of 14 generations. So when you look at that, why in the world would God allow these divisions to be seen? Well, now it's neat, especially if you love 
going back, looking at how God was working in, in the nation of Israel, here's what, what you find is, is that as you look at this genealogy in Matthew, that it begins or it commences, as it says there in verse 17, with Abraham. And we find that it traces the line then all the way to David. Now, why Abraham to David? Now, listen, when you study the Word of God, Abraham shows us the importance of the nation of Israel. When you look at David, it talks about the land that God promised to them. These are some of the covenant promises that God made to the nation of Israel. So the first grouping of 14 generations goes from Abraham, the nation, and traces his line to David dealing with the land. Now, the second group of 14 generations, this is all still in Matthew's gospel. The second group continues from David, and it actually continues through Solomon till the time of the Babylonian captivity. Now, why Solomon and why the Babylonian captivity? Well, we've already looked at it. It began with Abraham, the nation, goes all the way to David dealing with the land. Solomon deals with the throne. So you find here that it goes from the, the nation to the land to the throne, and it goes to the time of the Babylonian captivity, which is including the city. What city are we talking about? We're talking about Jerusalem, right? They were carried from their homeland into a, a, a strange land for a 70-year period that the Bible talks about. So you have the nation, the land, the throne in the second grouping of 14 generations to the city. Now look at the third grouping in Matthew. It concludes with the Babylonian captivity all the way to the time of Christ. So in this third group of 14 generations, the, the Babylonian captivity deals with the throne rights. Whose right is it to sit upon that throne? And then you find it goes through to the time of Christ. Well, think about this. Jesus one day will rule and reign. And, and again, all of this is to establish that he is the son of David. So as you notice there on the screen tonight, that it, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, back up there, uh, Brother Mike, uh, one step. You got ahead of me a little bit. <laughs> so here's what we find is that is what Luke's genealogy deals with. Now, when you get into uh, Luke's record, Luke actually begins with Jesus. And then what Luke does is he traces uh, Jesus, his descent to Nathan. Now, does anybody remember who Nathan was the son of? He was one of the sons of David. Nathan was, Nathan was one of the sons of David. And so you find that it begins with Jesus, traces his descent to Nathan, the son of David. Then he goes back to Abraham. Now, that's where you find in Matthew's uh, record of the genealogies, he goes back to Abraham. But he doesn't stop where Matthew did. Luke actually carries the pedigree all the way back to Adam, which was the son of God. So, Mike, put that up there. Now, here's, here's the pattern that you see. So, Matthew, I, I, I kind of said all that. Now, some of you kind of have that look on your face like, I don't know if I caught all that. Maybe this will help you. But to kind of summarize a little bit, Matthew's genealogy, the line that you see in Matthew's gospel record, it, it goes from Abraham to David to Solomon to Joseph, who was not Jesus's he was Jesus's earthly father, but Jesus was born of a virgin. And then you find it goes all the way to Jesus. Now, what Matthew establishes is 
that Jesus is the legal heir to the throne. And so that's what we find as you look at Matthew's gospel is, is that you follow that genealogy. That's why, listen, everything in the Bible is there for a reason, for a purpose. And what God was doing with those different generations was he was establishing that Jesus is the legal heir to the throne of David. Remember, we said that this, this helps us to understand that Jesus, as the Messiah, is the son of David. Now, why then with Luke's gospel does he follow a different pattern? Well, put that up, Brother Mike. Now, notice a little bit different here is Luke. You notice here he goes from Adam to Abraham to David to Nathan, his son, to notice Mary, not Joseph, to Jesus. Now, the reason that Luke's genealogy is in the order that it is is because Matthew established that Jesus is the legal heir to the throne of David. But when you look at Luke's genealogy, it presents Jesus as the physical heir to the throne of David. So again, you have the legality behind it, but then you have that he is the physical heir. And so all of this is, is presenting Jesus. He is the physical heir. He is the, the, now look what the Bible says in Luke chapter one. And I believe I have those verses there. Verse number 31. The Bible says, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him, notice the words here, give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. So you find here that, uh, again, what God was establishing in the Old Testament, that God, through the genealogy, it, listen, if you're like me, I guarantee you, sometimes we get to these genealogies in the Bible, and so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so, and you're kind of like, you know? I, I've been there myself, because the names are hard to pronounce, and and. and and sometimes you're like, I, I forgot who forget, who begat who, who begat who. Well, listen, when you come to the genealogies in Matthew and Luke's gospel, they are there for a reason. And hopefully that makes sense to you. Now, listen, if I said that too fast, maybe you need to take some time to let it settle or go back and look at it yourself. But we're going to move on tonight. But it is so important that we understand that Jesus here, the genealogies show that Jesus as the Messiah was the son of David. And of course, you see that established in Luke 1, 31 through 33. Now, the character of the gospel of Luke, it's a historical uh, background. It, it gives us much history. And the reason is that we find that as you look at this uh, gospel record, it gives a lot of detail as Luke is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to very sensitive understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ and those around him. I love to study the Bible. I don't know if you're like this, but I, a lot of times when I'm reading the Word of God, especially the gospel records, I like to put myself in the Bible. I, I like to think about what it would have been like to have been on the boat, or what it would have been like to be sitting there, or maybe what it would have been like to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And I love how God allows Luke then to give us really some understanding of who Jesus was and who those people were that were around him. Notice the subject of Luke's gospel is the illustrative truths of Christ. 
And, and again, I, when I look at the Bible, especially this gospel record, I find that it is very illustrative. I know that many of you, many of you enjoy comic strips and various things like that because, because they illustrate something. It, you know, seeing is believing sometimes for some people. And, and I think a lot of times we, we don't look through the eyes of faith. And Luke helps us as he writes down these words to help us give an understanding of who Jesus was and, and some of these individuals that, that he ministered to while he was on this earth. Notice the purpose of his gospel record is to prove that Jesus is the Son of Man, that he's the Savior of the world. The Son of Man, the Savior of the world. Now, we know this is true, that yes, Jesus was man, but he was also God. He wasn't 50-50, he was 100% God, and he was 100% man. And he came to be the Savior of the world. And, and I love the word Savior there, a soter, that he came to save us from our sins. He came to deliver us. Listen, the New Testament doesn't introduce that. That's introduced even in the Old Testament long before Jesus ever came. And Jesus is the Son of Man. And of course, we understand that he was tempted in all points like as we are. Yet he was without sin. So we find that, Matt, uh, that Luke's gospel record here proves Jesus as the Son of Man. Here's a simple little outline that maybe will help you as you're studying it. I, and I have it divided in five different groups. Notice we see the Savior predicted and then provided. And of course, God sent forth his Son. We find that Jesus left heaven, came to this earth. And you find this in the first four chapters of Luke's gospel. Then you find the second group is the Savior preaching and practicing the grace of God. Jesus, while he was on this earth, I love it. I wish I, again, that's, that's one of those where I wish I could have been there when Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. I wish I could have been there when Jesus was teaching some of these illustrative teachings and how you, you, it was evident that you saw the grace of God in action. And listen, if there ever was a day where God's people, us, need to be exhibiting the grace of God, it's right now in this day that we're living in. Notice the third section that starts in chapter number nine is the Savior pressing toward the performance of his passion. That's talking about Jesus is getting closer and closer to the cross. He's getting closer and closer to the reason why he left heaven and came to this earth. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So Jesus didn't come just to live on this earth. He came that he might give his life a ransom, that he might die for our sins. And so notice there, that's, that's really towards the end of chapter 9, all the way to ch almost the end of chapter 22, and, and really all the, way, all the way through chapter 22. Then the fourth division is the Savior pouring out the passion of his heart. And this is where Jesus, of course, is praying to the Father. Jesus knows that the weight of the sin of the world is, is on him. And the father has to turn his back on his own son. And so Jesus is pouring out his, his heart to, to his father. And in the last chapter, we find the Savior's profession is per, uh, perfected. And Jesus, of course, spending some time after he had risen with his followers. And I love how you find the hope at the end of each one of the gospel records that Jesus came. Yes, he, he, he lived, he suffered, he bled, he died but he rose and he's alive today. We find that in Luke's gospel record also. The scope, uh, in other words, how 
much this covers, it covers a period of about 34 years. And again, we know that Jesus lived about 33 and a half years on this earth. And so Luke covers his life uh, for the, that time period, 34 years. The writer is none other than Luke. And of course, God using him. And who did Luke write to? To whom written? Well, look in your Bible or there in your notes. Look in Luke chapter 1, the, the very beginning, the first four verses. And I want you to notice a couple things that we see here. Verse number 1. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were, look at that word, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things, from the very first to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things which wherein thou hast been instructed. So this is how, you know, if we were going to write a, a, a letter, and that's what really many of the books in our Bible are. They're really, uh, many of them are in the form of a letter, some longer than others. We call them books. But if we were going to write someone, what we would do is we would, we would maybe give a greeting at the beginning of it. We'd start it that way, uh, just kind of giving a nice greeting. Well, this is exactly what we're looking at in these first four books, or first four verses of this book. Now, when you look at some of the wording there, there's a word that is mentioned there. And notice the word here is most excellent Theophilus. Now, when you look at this particular word, some believe that Theophilus was a literal person. Uh, you look at it, it says most excellent Theophilus. And, and so as a result of that, a lot of people believe that maybe this individual was some high-ranking government official. And, and so a lot of people believe that that may have been who it is. Now, others, and, and again, there's many that hold this to be true, others think that Luke was actually addressing Christians. And when he used this word Theophilus, that it was actually a, a, a name, a symbolic name for the church. In other words, instead of calling them believers, uh, for instance, today we, we are called Baptists. Do you know that the word Baptist or the name Baptist, we didn't come up with that name. It was actually given to us. If you've ever studied our history, we were actually known as the Anabaptists. And then again, it, it took a different form. Now we're Baptists. And a lot of times people think that we came up with that. But see, there's always been, you, you can trace a, a, a line, a bloodline of the martyrs. And, and we weren't always called Baptists or Anabaptists. Sometimes people that believe what we believe, they were called the Paulicians because they followed the Apostle Paul and so on. And, and so when you look at this particular verse here, he uses the word Theophilus. Now remember, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So this isn't something Luke just conjured up, thought up. This is what God actually had him write it down. Now, I, I've never got into, uh, uh, in other words, if somebody believes that Theophilus it was an, a literal individual, I'm okay with that. If some people think that uh, it was, it, he was addressing Christians, then again, I, I'm okay with that. Because when you look at this particular word, if he's directing it to Theophilus, I really believe that even if he's talking to an individual person, 
that it does not narrow or limit its purpose to all believers. In other words, how many times in the Bible did you see Jesus addressing Peter, but it was really to all the disciples? And so even though Luke was writing maybe to a literal individual by the name of Theophilus, I, I really believe, and of course, uh, I told my wife just yesterday or the day before, it's amazing how relevant the Bible is. Have you noticed that every day, no matter what's going on in the world, that the Bible is always relevant. Uh, the book, the Bible is never outdated. And, and when I look at this particular uh, phrase here, Theophilus, now, it, I like to take words sometimes and break them down. There's a lot of words in the Bible that are very neat words because they're compound words. So in other words, you have two words that come together, and when they come together, they mean something separate, but when you bring them together, it, it takes on a little bit of a different meaning. So uh, let, let's do a little uh, test here tonight, all right? And of course, you at home, I guess you're off the hook because I can't ask you, but I'm going to ask these folks here tonight because we're just doing a Bible study. So if you take the first part of the word Theophilus, okay, Theo, anybody know what Theo means? means God. So we have the study of God, which is theology, right? So Theo is God. Now, the second half of the word is Philos. And Philos comes from Phileo. Anybody know what Phileo means? means love. So here's what the, what the name actually means, lover of God, one who loves God. And listen, how many of you love God tonight? All right, so you're a Theophilus, right? <laughs> So again, that's why I say that there's no doubt when he uses the word, look at it again here in, in, uh, in Luke chapter number one, he says to write unto, notice the word the. Now we don't, nowadays, we don't necessarily use the word the, but if you study it out, that is actually singular. So it, it, you have personal pronouns. So when you study the Bible, and you look at some of those pronouns, like another one you see in our Bible is ye. And ye is plural, but thee is actually singular. And it's kind of interesting because it lends to that he was talking to an individual. But nonetheless, when we look at it, we find that he was either addressing an individual, and then, of course, it broadened to everyone listening. And, of course, we know that God's word is profitable to all of us. But he could have been addressing believers as a whole, lovers of God. And so, again, I think it's kind of neat the way he did. Now, notice, I really believe when you study to whom Luke was writing to, uh, write this down, I believe that he was writing to Greek Christians. And these Greek Christians, remember, they were living during Hellenistic times. They were living in a predominantly Gentile setting. So, look, we are Christians today, and we are living in a very wicked society, are we not? And we find here that, that he is writing to Greek Christians in a predominantly Gentile setting. Luke uh, had really an outstanding command of the Greek language. I love when you study it. Again, he was a physician. He was a man that was, uh, his vocabulary was quite extensive. <laughs> it was very rich. I, I taught uh, Greek uh, for the Bible college that I was a part of for 12 years. And they had a textbook that was maybe about an inch, inch and a quarter uh, thick, and it was a small book. It was only about that big. And they got that book at the beginning of, uh, of the semester, and we used it for two semesters or one year. 
And every lesson in the book, there were, I think there were 34 lessons, the majority of them had anywhere from eight or more vocabulary words because they were actually learning a brand new language. And, and so every lesson, they had to learn eight brand new words. They had to learn the Greek word and the English meaning behind it. Well, at the end of the entire year, that was 334 words that they had to memorize, that they had to know, because uh, they knew that Brother Keeley was going to ask them on a test, so they had to make sure that they knew them. Well, listen, Luke was a man that, that commanded this language. He knew it very, very well. His vocabulary was extensive. It was rich. And he, Luke's account, as you study it, it's really kind of divided up into three groupings. And the way that is, if you want to write it down, is that the events that he covers, first of all, are the events in and around Galilee. Now, again, that, that was an area that Jesus even traveled and spent time in. And you can look there, look, look at some of your Bibles, the maps in the back. Look at the maps that say in the time of Christ and look at the map that, that actually shows Galilee. And so you find when Luke begins, he covers a lot of events in the beginning of Jesus's ministry in the region known as Galilee. Then the second group, our second area he covers events is in Judea and Perea. And again, these, if you look on a map, you'll see where those are, Judea and Perea, and, and so you find Jesus then spends uh, quite a bit of time. There's some, some things that happen in those two regions. And then the last part of Luke's gospel is actually the events that cover the final week of Jesus's life in Jerusalem. And of course, that leads up to uh, his, his uh, crucifixion. And so this is a little bit about who Luke wrote to. Notice when and where was Luke's gospel written? Uh, the dates, again, vary, but I believe somewhere between 63 and 68 A.D. is when Luke wrote his gospel record. And many believe there is some difference, but many believe that he wrote it from Caesarea Philippi is where he wrote it from. And so uh, that, that'll give you a little idea from where he might have written this gospel record. The key chapter, and I, I think these are always interesting, is chapter number 15, this is called the lost and found chapter. I, I love cha uh, chapter 15. Remember how it begins? It begins with that, that uh, uh, shepherd had how many sheep? 100 sheep, and he lost how many? One, and he went after it until he found the one, right? Then it has a woman that had 10 what? 10 silver coins. And she had 10 silver coins, but she lost how many? She lost one, and she, remember how she moved the furniture and swept the house until she found it? And then the third thing we see in that lost and found chapter is there was a father that had two what? Two sons, and one of them was lost. Remember, he took, took his, went and wasted it on riotous living, the Bible talks about. Hey, what a great, great chapter. That's, that's the key chapter in Luke's gospel, chapter number 15, the key verse is chapter 19, verse number 10, the Son of Man, there he is right there, Jesus, the Son of Man, is come, why did he come? To seek and to save. Now, did, it, did everybody get saved that's going to get saved when Jesus was on the earth? No. So Jesus, when he gave his life, it was for sins past, present, and future. Aren't you glad it was future sins? Because we weren't even around yet, all right? But the Son of Man came, that's why he came. He did not come, remember the Bible says he did not come to be ministered to, but to minister. 
and Jesus came that people might have eternal life. And so the key words there are seek and save. Seek and save are the two key words. The key phrase is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. Notice Luke 5, 24. But, but that you may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. He saith unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy couch, and go into thine house. Now remember that passage, it's also covered in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter number 2, where there was a man that, that, was, that was lame, he couldn't walk. Remember his, his friends, they, they tore the roof off the house, they lowered their friend down. And listen, Jesus, what did he say to this man? He says that he forgave the man of his sins. Now, Look, can you see sins forgiven? No, you can't see for, sins forgiven. But you can see a man that could not walk, get up, roll up his bed, and walk out of the place. And if Jesus can, if he has the power to heal somebody physically, then certainly he has the power to heal somebody spiritually. That's what he did for you and me, was he, he forgave us of our sins. And the Bible says here that he, he has the power upon earth to forgive sins as the Son of Man. The key thought is behold the man. Again, I, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be alive. And there's a lot of people, boy, when they hear the president's coming to town, they hear the pope's coming to town, boy, they, they, they'll stand in line, they'll do this, they'll do that. Can you imagine what it would have been like to see the Son of God, the Son of Man coming by? And we see here where the key thought there is behold the man. The spiritual thought for Luke's gospel, here it is. He is the friend of sinners. I love that. When I think about myself, listen, the Lord saves people from their sin. And he's a friend of sinners. Look at these verses. And of course, Jesus was highly criticized that he spent time with people that are sinners. The Son of Man is coming eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Anybody remember what a publican is? Tax collector, right? Isn't that interesting? In the same phrase there with sinners is tax collectors. Just thinking about that tax day and so on. And so Jesus is a friend of publicans and sinners. Luke 19, 7, when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. Hey, listen, I would expect nothing less of my Savior. And honestly, think about this. If you and I are going to be like Christ and we're going to help people get saved, we have to go to people that don't know him. We have to spend time with sinners. And folks, I hope that when you think about what Jesus did and how he lived his life, we have to make sure... Jesus saved us and he's left us here. Why? So that we can be a witness. Remember what Luke said? He says that he says we were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. That's what we need to be. And we see that Jesus is the friend of sinners. And, and we'll, we'll uh, end it here tonight with Christ is seen. We've already mentioned it a couple of times. He's seen as the son of man, the son of man. When Jesus was on this earth, listen, he, he, he depicted deep compassion towards others. He, he, he cared for the poor. Uh, listen, honestly, a lot of people, they, 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 they're all concerned about the status of life. Jesus 
cared about the oppressed. He cared about those that were marginalized by the culture. You know who those people were of Jesus' day? That would have been the people known as Samaritans. That would have been people that were Gentiles. Uh, how about this? That would have been women. Uh, in the society that, that when Jesus was on this earth, and of course even for many, many years in our uh, day, you see that, that many times women are looked upon not in the way that God would have them to be looked upon. And Jesus, he was compassionate towards all of these groups of people. Look at Luke 9, 56. The Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And the Bible says they went to another village. Jesus came so that people might have eternal life. Now take your Bible, if you would, and go over to the last chapter of Luke because we've talked about how Luke's gospel began, but let's look how it ends, all right? And I think, I think it's always interesting how something begins and how something ends. So if you would, look at these verses here tonight, and I want you to read along with me, and we're going to begin here in verse number uh, 44. The Bible says, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled. Now think about that. Jesus, right here in chapter 24, he's already gone to the cross. He's already died for the sins of the world. He's now risen, but he's not yet ascended back with the Father. He is in his post-resurrection ministry, he is giving some final instructions, we oftentimes call this the Great Commission, that was not only to those individuals, but still to us today, the church. And the Bible says that he tells them, that. do you remember all the things that I said to you? Now look, we cannot claim ignorance. You know why? Because you have a copy of God's word in your hand. See, God's preserved his word. We weren't there on that day, but it's just as if Jesus, your Bible have red letters in it? Because this verse right here is red letter. Now, it's all the Word of God, but listen, when I read this, I'm reading it like he's writing and saying this to me. And it says right here, he says, while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled. Let's read on. He says, which were written, where? In the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning who? Concerning me, concerning Jesus. Now, why did he mention it that way? In the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. You know what that is? That's the divisions of the Hebrew Bible. That's the entire Old Testament. Jesus is saying, if you go back to the scripture, which the New Testament wasn't written at this time, you find that that was the Bible at that particular time. And Jesus says, look, all the things that, that the scriptures, the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, that they mentioned concerning me. Remember, he says that all these things must be fulfilled. Let's read on, verse number 45. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Boy, that ought to be your prayer when you read your Bible. God, don't just let these be words. Help me to understand what you're saying. And this morning I was doing my Bible reading and I was like, Lord, I'm really struggling with this passage. Can you help me understand what you're saying here, maybe you're not like me, but sometimes I have to say, Lord, I need your help. I need the Holy Spirit to illumine me, help me to understand. In verse number 46, he, he said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ 
to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among, notice, all nations. That's why we go into all the world with the gospel. That's why we support missionaries. And notice he says here, beginning at Jerusalem. Now, when you go to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse number 8, he says, Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. So right here he says, when you look at this, he says, look, you need to begin at Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where they were. Well, where are we? We're Pembroke Pines. And he says, look, I want you to take my word, the gospel, I want you to go out from where you are and reach people before it's eternally too late. Look at how he ends it now. He says, and ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, he says, I send the promise of my father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with the power from on high. Now, why did he say it that way? Because remember that Jesus was still on the earth. So until the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, went up, when Jesus went up, guess who came down on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit of God, the third person. So when we think about how the Bible says that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, so Jesus said, I'll not leave you nor forsake you. That's how, because everywhere we go, God goes with us. So he says right here, he's, he's giving how that they would be endued with power from on high. Verse number 50, and he led them out, get a hold of this now, as, as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. They, they were there. They saw Jesus ascend. And the Bible says, and they worshipped him. He wasn't with them. He was ascending up to be with the Father. And they returned to Jerusalem with what? Great joy. They didn't go back on, man, Jesus is gone. No, they were excited. The Bible says, verse number 53, it says, and they were continually in the house of God, in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. You know, when the Lord comes into our lives, everything changes. And when the Lord gives us something to do, listen, let's be happy about it and let's do what he's given us to do. And that's why when you get to Acts chapter number one, the, the Bible records there, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which went up into heaven, shall so come again in like manner as ye have seen him going up into heaven. Hey, the Lord's coming back someday. And it may be soon, but listen, until he comes back, what should we be doing? We should be telling people, about Jesus, who is a friend of sinners, who is the son of man, who is the son of David. That's what Luke's gospel is all about. I hope this helps you a little bit. It's, it sure helped me to review it, to study it, to go over it once again. And so as we go through these books, next week we'll get into John's gospel and look forward to that as we go down Route 66. And I think it's going to be a great, great time. And so thank you for, for tuning in, watching us live stream or being here tonight. And uh, let's, let's remember, don't forget, Sunday, 